Section six of Redburn His First Voyage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Redburn His First Voyage by Herman Melville. Chapters twenty six through twenty nine. Chapter twenty six a sailor a jack-of-all-trades as i began to learn my sailor duties and show activity in running aloft the men i observed treated me with a little more consideration though not at all relaxing in a certain air of professional superiority for the mere knowing of the names of the ropes and familiarizing yourself with their places so that you can lay hold of them in the darkest night and the loosing and furling of the canvas and reefing topsails and hauling braces all this though of course forming an indispensable part of a seaman's vocation and the business in which he is principally engaged yet these are things which a beginner of ordinary capacity soon masters and which are far inferior to many other matters familiar to an able seaman what did i know for instance about striking a topgallant mast and sending it down on deck in a gale of wind could i have turned in a dead eye or in the approved nautical style have clapped a seizing on the mainstay what did i know of passing a gammoning reeving a burton strapping a shoe-block clearing a foul hawse and innumerable other intricacies the business of a thoroughbred sailor is a special calling as much of a regular trade as a carpenter's or locksmith's indeed it requires considerably more adroitness and far more versatility of talent in the english merchant service boys serve a long apprenticeship to the sea of seven years most of them first enter the newcastle colliers where they see a great deal of severe coasting service in an old copy of the letters of junius belonging to my father I remember reading that coal to supply the city of London could be dug at Blackheath, and sold for one-half the price that the people of London then paid for it. But the government would not suffer the mines to be opened, as it would destroy the great nursery for British seamen. A thorough sailor must understand much of other avocations. He must be a bit of an embroiderer to work fanciful collars of hempen lace about the shrouds. He must be something of a weaver to weave mats of rope-yarns for lashings to the boats. He must have a touch of millinery, so as to tie graceful bows and knots, such as Matthew Walker's roses and Turk's heads. He must be a bit of a musician, in order to sing out at the halyards. He must be a sort of jeweller, to set dead eyes in the standing rigging. He must be a carpenter, to enable him to make a jury-mast out of a yard in case of emergency. He must be a seamstress, to darn and mend the sails a rope-maker to twist marline and spanish foxes a blacksmith to make hooks and thimbles for the blocks in short he must be a sort of jack of all trades in order to master his own and this perhaps in a greater or less degree is pretty much the case with all things else for you know nothing till you know all which is the reason we never know anything a sailor also, in working at the rigging, uses special tools peculiar to his calling. Fids, serving mallets, toggles, prickers, marling spikes, palms, heavers, and many more. The smaller sort he generally carries with him from ship to ship, 
in a sort of canvas reticule. The estimation in which a ship's crew hold the knowledge of such accomplishments as these is expressed in the phrase they apply to one who is a clever practitioner. To distinguish such a mariner from those who merely hand, reef, and steer, that is, run aloft, furl sails, haul ropes, and stand at the wheel, they say he is a sailor-man, which means that he not only knows how to reef a topsail, but is an artist in the rigging. Now, alas, I had no chance given me to become initiated in this art and mystery, no further, at least, than by looking on and watching how that these things might be done as well as others. The reason was that I had only shipped for this one voyage in the Highlander, a short voyage, too, and it was not worth while to teach me anything the fruit of which instructions could be only reaped by the next ship I might belong to. All they wanted of me was the goodwill of my muscles and the use of my backbone, comparatively small though it was at that time, by way of a lever for the above-mentioned artists to employ when wanted. Accordingly, when any embroidery was going on in the rigging, I was set to the most inglorious avocations, as in the merchant service it is a religious maxim to keep the hands always employed at something or other, never mind what, during their watch on deck. Often furnished with a club-hammer, they swung me over the bows in a bowline to pound the rust off the anchor, a most monotonous and to me a most uncongenial and irksome business. There was a remarkable fatality attending the various hammers I carried over with me. Somehow they would drop out of my hands into the sea but the supply of reserved hammers seemed unlimited. Also the blessings and benedictions I received from the chief mate for my clumsiness. At other times they set me to picking oakum, like a convict, which hempen business disagreeably obtruded thoughts of halters and the gallows, or whittling belaying pins, like a down-easter. However, I endeavored to bear it like a young philosopher and whiled away the tedious hours by gazing through a porthole while my hands were plying, and repeating Lord Byron's address to the ocean, which I had often spouted on the stage at the high school at home. Yes, I got used to all these matters, and took most things coolly in the spirit of Seneca and the Stoics. All but the turning out or rising from your berth when the watch was called at night. That I never fancied. It was a sort of acquaintance which the more I cultivated, the more I shrunk from. A thankless, miserable business, truly. Consider that after walking the deck for four full hours, you go below to sleep, and while thus innocently employed in reposing your wearied limbs, you are started up, it seems but the next instant after closing your lids, and hurried on deck again into the same disagreeably dark and perhaps stormy night from which you descended into the forecastle. The previous interval of slumber was almost wholly lost to me. At least the golden opportunity could not be appreciated. For though it is usually deemed a comfortable thing to be asleep, yet at the time no one is conscious that he is so enjoying himself. Therefore, I made a little private arrangement with the Lancashire lad, who was in the other watch, just to step below occasionally and shake me and whisper in my ear, watch below buttons watch below which pleasantly reminded me of the delightful fact then i would turn over on my side and take another nap and in this manner 
I enjoyed several complete watches in my bunk to the other sailors one. I recommend the plan to all landsmen contemplating a voyage to sea. But notwithstanding all these contrivances, the dreadful sequel could not be avoided. Eight bells would at last be struck, and the men on deck, exhilarated by the prospect of changing places with us, would call the watch in a most provoking but mirthful and facetious style. As thus. Starboard watch ahoy! Eight bells there below! Tumble up, my lively hearties! Steamboat alongside waiting for your trunks! Bear a hand! Bear a hand with your knee-buckles, my sweet and pleasant fellows! Fine shower-bath here on deck! Hurrah! Hurrah! Your ice-cream is getting cold! Whereupon some of the old croakers who were getting into their trousers would reply with, Oh, stop your gavel, will you? Don't be in such a hurry now. You feel sweet, don't you? With other exclamations, some of which were full of fury. And it was not a little curious to remark that at the expiration of the ensuing watch, the tables would be turned, and we on deck became the wits and jokers, and those below the grisly bears and growlers. Chapter 27 He Gets a Peep at Ireland, and at last arrives at Liverpool. The Highlander was not a greyhound, not a very fast sailor, and so the passage which some of the packet-ships make in fifteen or sixteen days employed us about thirty. At last, one morning, I came on deck, and they told me that Ireland was in sight. Ireland in sight? A foreign country actually visible. I peered hard, but could see nothing but a bluish, cloud-like spot in the northeast. Was that Ireland? Why, there was nothing remarkable about that. Nothing startling. If that's the way a foreign country looks, I might as well have stayed at home. Now, what, exactly, I had fancied the shore would look like, I cannot say. But I had a vague idea that it would be something strange and wonderful. However, there it was, and as the light increased and the ship sailed nearer and nearer, the land began to magnify and I gazed at it with increasing interest. Ireland. I thought of Robert Emmett, and that last speech of his before Lord Norbury. I thought of Tommy Moore, and his amatory verses. I thought of Curran, Groton, Plunkett, and O'Connell. I thought of my uncle's ostler, Patrick Flinnegan. And I thought of the shipwreck of the gallant Albion, tossed to pieces on the very shore now in sight and I thought I should very much like to leave the ship and visit Dublin and the Giant's Causeway. Presently a fishing-boat drew near, and I rushed to get a view of it. But it was a very ordinary-looking boat, bobbing up and down as any other boat would have done. Yet when I considered that the solitary man in it was actually a born native of the land in sight, that in all probability he had never been in America, and knew nothing about my friends at home, I began to think that he looked somewhat strange. He was a very fluent fellow, and as soon as we were within hailing distance, cried out, Ah, my fine sailors from Ameriky, ain't ye, my beautiful sailors? And concluded by calling upon us to stop and heave a rope. Thinking he might have something important to communicate, the mate accordingly backed I the main yard, and a rope being thrown, the stranger kept hauling in upon it 
and coiling it down, crying, Pay out, pay out, my honeys. Ah, but you're noble fellows. Till at last the maid asked him why he did not come alongside, adding, Haven't you enough rope yet? Sure, and I have, replied the fisherman. And it's time for Pat to cut and run. And so saying, his knife severed the rope, and with a Kilkenny grin, he sprang to his tiller, put his little craft before the wind, and bowled away from us with some fifteen fathoms of our tow-line. "'And may the old boy hurry after you, and hang you in your stolen hemp, you Irish blackguard!' cried the mate, shaking his fist at the receding boat after recovering from his first fit of amazement. Here, then, was a beautiful introduction to the eastern hemisphere, fairly robbed before striking soundings. This trick upon experienced travellers certainly beat all I had ever heard about the wooden nutmegs and basswood pumpkin seeds of Connecticut. And I thought if there were any more Hibernians like our friend Pat, the Yankee peddlers might as well give it up. The next land we saw was Wales. It was high noon, and a long line of purple mountains lay like banks of clouds against the east. Could this be really Wales? Wales? and I thought of the Prince of Wales. And did a real queen with a diadem reign over that very land I was looking at, with the identical eyes in my own head? And then I thought of a grandfather of mine, who had fought against the ancestor of this queen, at Bunker's Hill. But after all, the general effect of these mountains was mortifyingly like the general effect of the Catskill Mountains on the Hudson River. With a light breeze, we sailed on till next day when we made Hollyhead and Angel Sea. Then it fell almost calm, and what little wind we had was ahead. So we kept tacking to and fro, just gliding through the water, and always hovering in sight of a snow-white tower in the distance, which might have been a fort or a lighthouse. I lost myself in conjectures as to what sort of people might be tenanting that lonely edifice, and whether they knew anything about us. The third day, with a good wind over the taffrail, we arrived so near our destination that we took a pilot at dusk. He and everything connected with him were very different from our New York pilot. In the first place, the pilot boat that brought him was a plethoric-looking sloop-rigged boat with flat bows that went wheezing through the water, quite in contrast to the little gull of a schooner that bade us adieu off Sandy Hook. Aboard of her were ten or twelve other pilots, fellows with shaggy brows and muffled and shaggy coats, who sat grouped together on deck like a fireside of bears, wintering in Aristook. They must have had fine sociable times, though, together, cruising about the Irish Sea in quest of Liverpool-bound vessels, smoking cigars, drinking brandy and water, and spinning yarns till at last, one by one, they are all scattered on board of different ships, and meet again by the side of a blazing sea-coal fire in some Liverpool tap-room, and prepare for another yachting. Now, when this English pilot boarded us, I stared at him as if he had been some wild animal just escaped from the zoological gardens. For here was a real live Englishman, just from England. Nevertheless, as he soon fell to ordering us here and there, and swearing vociferously in a language quite familiar to me, I began to think him very commonplace, and considerable of a bore after all. After running till about midnight, 
we hove to near the mouth of the Mersey, and next morning, before daybreak, took the first of the flood, and with a fair wind stood into the river, which at its mouth is quite an arm of the sea. Presently, in the misty twilight, we passed immense buoys and caught sight of distant objects on shore, vague and shadowy shapes, like Ocean's ghosts. As I stood leaning over the side and trying to summon up some image of Liverpool, to see how the reality would answer to my conceit, and while the fog and mist and grey dawn were investing everything with a mysterious interest, I was startled by the doleful, dismal sound of a great bell, whose slow, intermitting tolling seemed in unison with the solemn roll of the billows. I thought I had never heard so boding a sound, a sound that seemed to speak of judgment and the resurrection, like belfry-mouthed Paul of Tarsus. It was not in the direction of the shore, but seemed to come out of the vaults of the sea, and out of the mist and fog. Who was dead, and what could it be? I soon learned from my shipmates that this was the famous bet-buoy, which is precisely what its name implies, and tolls fast or slow according to the agitation of the waves. In a calm it is dumb, in a moderate breeze it tolls gently, but in a gale it is an alarum like the tocsin warning all mariners to flee but it seemed fuller of dirges for the past than of monitions for the future and no one can give ear to it without thinking of the sailors who sleep far beneath it at the bottom of the deep as we sailed ahead the river contracted the day came and soon passing two lofty landmarks on the lancashire shore we rapidly drew near the town and at last came to anchor in the stream looking shoreward i beheld lofty ranges of dingy warehouses which seemed very deficient in the elements of the marvellous and bore a most unexpected resemblance to the warehouses along south street in new york there was nothing strange nothing extraordinary about them there they stood a row of calm and collected warehouses very good and substantial edifices doubtless and admirably adapted to the ends had in view by the builders. But plain, matter-of-fact warehouses, nevertheless, and that was all that could be said of them. To be sure, I did not expect that every house in Liverpool must be a leaning tower of Pisa, or a Strasbourg cathedral. But yet, these edifices, I must confess, were a sad and bitter disappointment to me. But it was different with Larry the Whaleman, who, to my surprise, looking about him delighted, exclaimed, "'Why, this air is a considerable place. I'm dumbed if it ain't quite a place. Why, them air houses is considerable houses. It beats the coast of Africa all hollow. Nothing like this in Madagascar, I tell you. I'm dumbed, boys, if Liverpool ain't a city.' Upon this occasion, indeed, Larry altogether forgot his hostility to civilization. Having been so long accustomed to associate foreign lands with the savage places of the Indian Ocean, he had been under the impression that Liverpool must be a town of bamboos, situated in some swamp, and whose inhabitants turned their attention principally to the cultivation of logwood and curing of flying fish. For that any great commercial city existed three thousand miles from home, was a thing of which Larry had never before had a realizing sense. He was accordingly astonished and delighted, 
and began to feel a sort of consideration for the country which could boast so extensive a town. Instead of holding Queen Victoria on a par with the Queen of Madagascar, as he had been accustomed to do, he ever after alluded to that lady with feeling and respect. As for the other seamen, the sight of a foreign country seemed to kindle no enthusiasm in them at all, no emotion in the least. They looked around them with great presence of mind, and acted precisely as you or I would, if, after a morning's absence round the corner, we found ourselves returning home. Nearly all of them had made frequent voyages to Liverpool. Not long after anchoring, several boats came off, and from one of them stepped a neatly dressed and very respectable-looking woman, some thirty years of age, I should think, carrying a bundle. Coming forward among the sailors, she inquired for Max the Dutchman, who immediately was forthcoming, and saluted her by the mellifluous appellation of Sally. Now, during the passage, Max, in discoursing to me of Liverpool, had often assured me that that city had the honor of containing a spouse of his, and that in all probability I would have the pleasure of seeing her. But having heard a good many stories about the bigamies of seamen, and their having wives and sweethearts in every port the round world over, and having been an eye-witness to a nuptial parting between this very Max and a lady in New York, I put down this relation of his for what I thought it might reasonably be worth. What was my astonishment, therefore, to see this really decent civil woman coming with a neat parcel of Max's shore-clothes, all washed, plated, and ironed? and ready to put on at a moment's warning. They stood apart a few moments, giving loose to those transports of pleasure which always take place, I suppose, between man and wife after long separations. At last, after many earnest inquiries as to how he had behaved himself in New York, and concerning the state of his wardrobe, and going down into the forecastle and inspecting it in person, Sally departed having exchanged her bundle of clean clothes for a bundle of soiled ones, and this was precisely what the New York wife had done for Max not thirty-eye days previous. So long as we laid in port, Sally visited the Highlander daily, and approved herself a neat and expeditious getter-up of duck frocks and trousers, a capital tailoress, and as far as I could see, a very well-behaved, discreet, and reputable woman. But from all I had seen of her, I should suppose Meg, the New York wife, to have been equally well-behaved, discreet, and reputable, and equally devoted to the keeping in good order Max's wardrobe. And when we left England at last, Sally bade Max good-bye, just as Meg had done, and when we arrived at New York, Meg greeted Max, precisely as Sally had greeted him in Liverpool. Indeed, a pair of more amiable wives never belonged to one man. They never quarrelled, or had so much as a difference of any kind, the whole broad Atlantic being between them, and Max was equally polite and civil to both. For many years he had been going Liverpool and New York voyages, plying between wife and wife with great regularity, and sure of receiving a hearty domestic welcome on either side of the ocean. Thinking this conduct of his, however, altogether wrong and every way immoral, I once ventured to express to him my opinion on the subject, but I never did so again. He turned round on me very savagely, and after rating me soundly for meddling in concerns not my own, concluded by asking me triumphantly 
whether old King Saul, as he called the son of David, did not have a whole frigate full of wives, and that being the case, whether he, a poor sailor, did not have just as good a right to have two. What was not wrong then is right now, said Max, so mind your eye, Buttons, or I'll crack your pepper-box for you. Chapter 28 he goes to supper at the sign of the baltimore clipper in the afternoon our pilot was all alive with his orders we hove up the anchor and after a deal of pulling and hauling and jamming against other ships we wedged our way through a lock at high tide and about dark succeeded in working up to a berth in prince's dock the hawsers and tow-lines being then coiled away the crew were told to go ashore select their boarding-house, and sit down to supper. Here it must be mentioned that, owing to the strict but necessary regulations of the Liverpool docks, no fires of any kind are allowed on board the vessels within them. And hence, though the sailors are supposed to sleep in the forecastle, yet they must get their meals ashore, or live upon cold potatoes. To a ship, the American merchantmen adopt the former plan the owners of course paying the landlord's bill which in a large crew remaining at liverpool more than six weeks as we of the highlander did forms no inconsiderable item in the expenses of the voyage other ships however the economical dutch and danish for instance and sometimes the prudent scotch feed their luckless tars in dock with precisely the same fare which they give them at sea taking their salt junk ashore to be cooked which indeed is but scurvy sort of treatment since it is very apt to induce the scurvy a parsimonious proceeding like this is regarded with immeasurable disdain by the crews of the new york vessels who if their captains treated them after that fashion would soon bolt and run it was quite dark when we all sprang ashore and for the first time i felt dusty particles of the renowned british soil penetrating into my eyes and lungs as for stepping on it, that was out of the question in the well-paved and flagged condition of the streets. And I did not have an opportunity to do so till some time afterward, when I got out into the country, and then indeed I saw England and snuffed its immortal loam, but not till then. Jackson led the van, and after stopping at a tavern, took us up this street and down that, till at last he brought us to a narrow lane filled with boarding-houses spirit vaults and sailors here we stopped before the sign of a baltimore clipper flanked on one side by a gilded bunch of grapes and a bottle and on the other by the british unicorn and american eagle lying down by each other like the lion and lamb in the millennium a very judicious and tasty device showing a delicate apprehension of the propriety of conciliating american sailors in an english boarding-house and yet in no way derogating from the honor and dignity of England, but placing the two nations indeed upon a footing of perfect equality. Near the unicorn was a very small animal which at first I took for a young unicorn, but it looked more like a yearling lion. It was holding up one paw, as if it had a splinter in it, and on its head was a sort of basket-hilted low-crowned hat without a rim. I asked a sailor standing by, what this animal meant when looking at me with a grin he answered why youngster don't you know what that means it's a young jackass limping off with a kidgery pot of rice out of the cuddy 
though it was an english boarding-house it was kept by a broken-down american mariner one danby a dissolute idle fellow who had married a buxom english wife and now lived upon her industry for the lady and not the sailor proved to be the head of the establishment she was a hale good-looking woman about forty years old and among the seamen went by the name of handsome mary but though from the dissipated character of her spouse mary had become the business personage of the house bought the marketing overlooked the tables and conducted all the more important arrangements yet she was by no means an amazon to her husband if she did play a masculine part in other matters no and the more is the pity poor mary seemed too much attached to danby to seek to rule him as a termagant often she went about her household concerns with the tears in her eyes when after a fit of intoxication this brutal husband of hers had been beating her the sailors took her part and many a time volunteered to give him a thorough thrashing before her eyes but mary would beg them not to do so as danby would no doubt be a better boy next time but there seemed no likelihood of this so long as that abominable bar of his stood upon the premises as you entered the passage it stared upon you on one side ready to entrap all guests it was a grotesque old-fashioned castellated sort of a sentry-box made of a smoky-coloured wood and with a grating in front that lifted up like a portcullis and here would this danby sit all the day long and when customers grew thin would patronize his own ale himself pouring down mug after mug as if he took himself for one of his own quarter-casks. Sometimes an old crony of his, one Bob Still, would come in, and then they would occupy the sentry-box together, and swill their beer in concert. This pot-friend of Danby was portly as a dray-horse, and had a round, sleek, oily head, twinkling eyes, and moist red cheeks. He was a lusty troller of ale-songs, and with his mug in his hand, would lean his waddling bulk partly out of the sentry-box singing no frost no snow no wind i trow can hurt me if i wold i am so wrapped and thoroughly lapped in jolly good ale and old i stuff my skin so full within of jolly good ale and old or this four wines and brandies i detest here's richer juice from barley pressed it is the quintessence of malt and they that drink it want no salt come then quick come and take this beer and water henceforth you'll forswear alas handsome mary what avail all thy private tears and remonstrances with the incorrigible danby so long as that brewery of a toper bob still daily eclipses thy threshold with the vast diameter of his paunch and enthrones himself in the sentry-box holding divided rule with thy spouse the more he drinks the fatter and rounder waxes bob and the songs pour out as the ale pours in on the well-known principle that the air in a vessel is displaced and expelled as the liquid rises higher and higher in it but as for danby the miserable yankee grows sour on good cheer and dries up the thinner for every drop of fat ale he imbibes. It is plain and demonstrable that much ale is not good for Yankees, 
and operates differently upon them from what it does upon a Briton. Ale must be drank in a fog and a drizzle. Entering the sign of the clipper, Jackson ushered us into a small room on one side, and shortly after, Handsome Mary waited upon us with a courtesy, and received the compliments of several old guests among our crew. She then disappeared to provide our supper. While my shipmates were now engaged in tippling and talking with numerous old acquaintances of theirs in the neighborhood, who thronged about the door, I remained alone in the little room, meditating profoundly upon the fact that I was now seated upon an English bench, under an English roof, in an English tavern, forming an integral part of the English empire. It was a staggering fact, but nonetheless true. I examined the place attentively. It was a long, narrow little room, with one small arched window with red curtains, looking out upon a smoky, untidy yard, bounded by a dingy brick wall, the top of which was horrible, with pieces of broken old bottles stuck into mortar. A dull lamp swung overhead, placed in a wooden ship suspended from the ceiling. The walls were covered with a paper representing an endless succession of vessels, of all nations, continually circumnavigating the apartment. By way of a pictorial mainsail to one of these ships, a map was hung against it, representing in faded colors the flags of all nations. From the street came a confused uproar of ballad-singers, bawling women, babies, and drunken sailors. And this is England? But where are the old abbeys, and the York Minsters, and the Lord Mayors, and Coronations, and the Maypoles, and Fox-hunters, and Derby-races, and the Dukes and Duchesses, and the Count d'Orsies, which, from all my reading, I had been in the habit of associating with England? not the most distant glimpse of them was to be seen. Alas, Wellingborough, thought I, I fear you stand but a poor chance to see the sights. You are nothing but a poor sailor-boy, and the Queen is not going to send a deputation of noblemen to invite you to St. James's. It was then I began to see that my prospects of seeing the world as a sailor were, after all, but very doubtful. For sailors only go round the world, without going into it and their reminiscences of travel are only a dim recollection of a chain of tap-rooms surrounding the globe parallel with the equator. They but touch the perimeter of the circle, hover about the edges of terra firma, and only land upon wharves and pierheads. They would dream as little of travelling inland to see Kenilworth or Blenheim Castle as they would of sending a car overland to the Pope when they touched at Naples. From these reveries I was soon roused by a servant-girl hurrying from room to room in shrill tones, exclaiming, Supper! Supper ready! Mounting a rickety staircase, we entered a room on the second floor. Three tall brass candlesticks shed a smoky light upon smoky walls, of what had once been sea-blue, covered with sailor-scrawls of foul anchors, lovers' sonnets, and ocean ditties. On one side, nailed against the wainscot in a row, were the four knaves of cards, each jack putting his best foot foremost as usual. What these signified I never heard. But such ample cheer, such a groaning table, such a superabundance of solids and substantial. Was it possible that sailors fared thus? The sailors who at sea live upon salt beef and biscuit? First and foremost, 
was a mighty pewter dish, big as Achilles' shield, sustaining a pyramid of smoking sausages. This stood at one end. Midway was a similar dish, heavily laden with farmer's slices of head cheese. And at the opposite end, a congregation of beefsteaks piled tier over tier. Scattered at intervals between were side dishes of boiled potatoes, eggs by the score, bread and pickles, and on a stand adjoining was an ample reserve of everything on the supper-table. We fell, too, with all our hearts, wrapped ourselves in hot jackets of beefsteaks, curtailed the sausages with great celerity, and sitting down before the head-cheese, soon raised it to its foundations. Toward the close of the entertainment I suggested to Peggy, one of the girls who had waited upon us, that a cup of tea would be a nice thing to take, and I would thank her for one. She replied that it was too late for tea, but she would get me a cup of swipes, if I wanted it. Not knowing what swipes might be, I thought I would run the risk and try it, but it proved a miserable beverage, with a musty sour flavor, as if it had been a decoction of spoiled pickles. I never patronized swipes again, but gave it a wide berth, though at dinner afterward it was furnished to an unlimited extent and drunk by most of my shipmates who pronounced it good. But Bob still would not have pronounced it so, for this swipes, as I learned, was a sort of cheap substitute for beer, or a bastard kind of beer, or the washings and rinsings of old beer barrels. But I do not remember now what they said it was precisely. I only know that swipes was my abomination. As for the taste of it, I can only describe it as answering to the name itself, which is certainly significant of something vile, but it is drunk in large quantities by the poor people about Liverpool, which perhaps in some degree accounts for their poverty. CHAPTER Twenty Nine, Redburn Deferentially Discourses Concerning the Prospects of Sailors the ship remained in Prince's Dock over six weeks, but as I do not mean to present a diary of my stay there, I shall here simply record the general tenor of the life led by our crew during that interval, and will then proceed to note down at random my own wanderings about town, and impressions of things as they are recalled to me now, after the lapse of so many years. But first I must mention that we saw little of the captain during our stay in the dock. Sometimes cane in hand, he sauntered down of a pleasant morning from the Arms Hotel, I believe it was, where he boarded, and after lounging about the ship giving orders to his Prime Minister and Grand Vizier, the chief mate, he would saunter back to his drawing-rooms. From the glimpse of a playbill which I detected peeping out of his pocket, I inferred that he patronized the theatres, and from the flush of his cheeks that he patronized the fine old port wine for which Liverpool is famous. Occasionally, however, he spent his nights on board, and mad, roistering nights they were, such as rare Ben Johnson would have delighted in. For company over the cabin table, he would have four or five whiskered sea captains, who kept the steward drawing corks and filling glasses all the time, and once the whole company were found under the table at four o'clock in the morning, and were put to bed and tucked in by the two mates. Upon this occasion, I agreed with our woolly doctor of divinity, the black cook, that they should have been ashamed of themselves, but there is no shame in some sea captains who only blush after the third bottle. During the many visits of Captain Riga to the ship, 
he always said something courteous to a gentlemanly friendless custom-house officer who stayed on board of us nearly all the time we lay in the dock and weary days they must have been to this friendless custom-house officer trying to kill time in the cabin with a newspaper and rapping on the transom with his knuckles he was kept on board to prevent smuggling but he used to smuggle himself ashore very often when according to law he should have been at his post on board ship but no wonder he seemed to be a man of fine feelings altogether above his situation a most inglorious one indeed worse than driving geese to water and now to proceed with the crew at daylight all hands were called and the decks were washed down then we had an hour to go ashore to breakfast after which we worked at the rigging or picked oakum or were set to some employment or other never mind how trivial till twelve o'clock when we went to dinner at half past nine we resumed work and finally knocked off at four o'clock in the afternoon unless something particular was in hand and after four o'clock we could go where we pleased and were not required to be on board again till next morning at daylight as we had nothing to do with the cargo of course our duties were light enough and the chief mate was often put to it to devise some employment for us we had no watches to stand a shipkeeper hired from shore relieving us from that and all the while the men's wages ran on as at sea sundays we had to ourselves thus it will be seen that the life led by sailors of american ships in liverpool is an exceedingly easy one and abounding in leisure they live ashore on the fat of the land and after a little wholesome exercise in the morning have the rest of the day to themselves nevertheless these liverpool voyages likewise those to london and havre are the least profitable that an improvident seaman can take because in new york he receives his month's advance in liverpool another both of which in most cases quickly disappear so that by the time his voyage terminates he generally has but little coming to him sometimes not a cent whereas upon a long voyage say to india or china his wages accumulate he has more inducements to economize and far fewer motives to extravagance and when he is paid off at last he goes away jingling a quart measure of dollars besides of all seaports in the world liverpool perhaps most abounds in all the variety of land sharks land rats and other vermin which make the hapless mariner their prey in the shape of landlords barkeepers clothiers crimps and boarding-house loungers the land sharks devour him limb by limb while the land rats and mice constantly nibble at his purse other perils he runs also far worse from the denizens of notorious corinthian haunts in the vicinity of the docks which in depravity are not to be matched by anything this side of the pit that is bottomless and yet sailors love this liverpool and upon long voyages to distant parts of the globe will be continually dilating upon its charms and attractions and extolling it above all other seaports in the world for in liverpool they find their paradise not the well-known street of that name and one of them told me he would be content to lie in prince's dock till he hove up anchor for the world to come much is said of ameliorating the condition of sailors but it must ever prove a most difficult endeavor so long as the antidote is given before the bane is removed 
consider that with the majority of them the very fact of their being sailors argues a certain recklessness and sensualism of character ignorance and depravity consider that they are generally friendless and alone in the world or if they have friends and relatives they are almost constantly beyond the reach of their good influences consider that after the rigorous discipline hardships dangers and privations of a voyage they are set adrift in a foreign port and exposed to a thousand enticements which under the circumstances would be hard even for virtue itself to withstand unless virtue went about on crutches consider that by their very vocation they are shunned by the better classes of people and cut off from all access to respectable and improving society consider all this and the reflecting mind must very soon perceive that the case of sailors as a class is not a very promising one indeed the bad things of their condition come under the head of those chronic evils which can only be ameliorated it would seem by ameliorating the moral organization of all civilization though old seventy-fours and old frigates are converted into chapels and launched into the docks though the boatswain's mate and other clever religious tracts in the nautical dialect are distributed among them though clergymen harangue them from the pierheads and chaplains in the navy read sermons to them on the gun-deck though evangelical boarding-houses are provided for them though the parsimony of ship-owners has seconded the really sincere and pious efforts of temperance societies to take away from seamen their old rations of grog while at sea notwithstanding all these things and many more the relative condition of the great bulk of sailors to the rest of mankind seems to remain pretty much where it was a century ago it is too much the custom perhaps to regard as a special advance that unavoidable and merely participative progress which any one class makes in sharing the general movement of the race thus because the sailor who to-day steers the hibernia or unicorn steamship across the atlantic is a somewhat different man from the exaggerated sailors of smollett and the men who fought with nelson at copenhagen and survived to riot themselves away at north corner in plymouth because the modern tar is not quite so gross as heretofore and has shaken off some of his shaggy jackets and docked his lord rodney quay therefore in the estimation of some observers he has begun to see the evils of his condition and has voluntarily improved but upon a closer scrutiny it will be seen that he has but drifted along with that great tide which perhaps has two flows for one ebb he has made no individual advance of his own there are classes of men in the world who bear the same relation to society at large that the wheels do to a coach and are just as indispensable but however easy and delectable the springs upon which the insiders pleasantly vibrate however sumptuous the hammer-cloth and glossy the door-panels yet for all this the wheels must still revolve in dusty or muddy revolutions no contrivance no sagacity can lift them out of the mire for upon something the coach must be bottomed on something the insiders must roll now sailors form one of these wheels they go and come round the globe they are the true importers and exporters of spices and silks of fruits and wines and marbles they carry missionaries ambassadors opera singers armies merchants tourists and scholars to their destination 
They are a bridge of boats across the Atlantic. They are the primum mobile of all commerce. And in short, were they to emigrate in a body to man the navies of the moon, almost everything would stop here on earth except its revolution on its axis and the orators in the American Congress. And yet, what are sailors? What in your heart do you think of that fellow staggering along the dock? Do you not give him a wide berth, shun him, and account him but little above the brutes that perish? Will you throw open your parlors to him, invite him to dinner, or give him a season ticket to your pew in church? No, you will do no such thing, but at a distance you will perhaps subscribe a dollar or two for the building of a hospital to accommodate sailors already broken down or for the distribution of excellent books among tars who cannot read. And the very mode and manner in which such charities are made bespeak, more than words, the low estimation in which sailors are held. It is useless to gainsay it. They are deemed almost the refuse and offscorings of the earth, and the romantic view of them is principally had through romances. But can sailors, one of the wheels of this world, be wholly lifted up from the mire there seems not much chance for it in the old systems and programs of the future however well-intentioned and sincere for with such systems the thought of lifting them up seems almost as hopeless as that of growing the grape in nova zembla but we must not altogether despair for the sailor nor need those who toil for his good be at bottom disheartened or time must prove his friend in the end and though sometimes he would almost seem as a neglected stepson of heaven permitted to run on and riot out his days with no hand to restrain him while others are watched over and tenderly cared for yet we feel and we know that god is the true father of all and that none of his children are without the pale of his care end of section six recording by james k white chula vista